So let's put some framework to what we're doing. This meditation that I'm teaching you is effectively the middle part of the Buddha's Eightfold Noble Path, or the middle section, which is the cultivation or purification of mind. The Buddha's Eightfold Noble Path, and it's not, I'm not teaching you from a Buddhist perspective, so it's not that I'm trying to teach you Buddhist Dhamma, but it needs to relate back to this because it's a very, very complete. Um, this lays it very com- in a very complete uh, vision or, or of our predicament, um, our relationship to suffering and the absence or cessation of it, and how we might achieve that, which ultimately I hope is our goal, to free ourselves from suffering and to find peace and happiness. I mean, presumably you're not here just so you're very good at concentrating on your nose and sitting on your backside. You know, it's so that we can free ourselves in some way of the affliction that we experience in our life. That's why we meditate. And it's a very serious, you know, not serious, but it's a sincere endeavor when we decide to actually explore really what lies behind the way our mind functions and how the experience of life we have comes about. You know, here we are in the middle of it, wondering how on earth I got to be the way I am and why life sometimes is a real struggle and how come it works out for some people and doesn't work out for others and it's a bit of a mystery and I'm in a bit of a muddle and then working to the place where it's not a mystery anymore is quite a serious undertaking and it's not done through studying it's not done through intellectual reflection it's not done through understanding that comes to it it's through the seeing what this is And to get to the place where we can see what this is, we have to polish the lens that we're looking through so it's not distorted and that it can see clearly enough what this is. Because the only reason we're confused is because we can't see what this is. We spend a lifetime filling the gaps in our perception, trying to fill the gaps in our perception with our understanding. And actually what we've tried to do is not fill it with our understanding, because understanding comes from insight. That which I've seen to be true. We've tried to fill it with ideas. And ideas are, or coming to views, is one of the causes of us coming to suffering, as the Buddha said. So the process by which we strip the relation, the experience we're having of the illusion that we've created around it, and see it in its bare nakedness for what it is, is the process of gradually learning to see. And in order to get to the place that we can see, we have to learn to pay sufficient attention and in a wise way, so that we do not create distortion in the process of seeing. So the Buddha taught us what he called, or what became called, this Eightfold Noble Path, this three-phase cultivation that leads to the liberation through insight, through seeing what is. And that's the extraordinary thing, that as soon as you see, when you see what this is, you free yourself. The only reason you're not free of suffering is because you haven't seen what this is yet. And that's amazing, that the liberation is in the seeing. As you see it, you free yourself of your, the suffering that it produces. It is only ignorance 
that causes suffering. That's also quite extraordinary. It's only through not understanding. Whatever you might think is the cause of suffering actually isn't the cause of suffering. It's not innate. Greed, hatred, selfishness, they're not innate. They are all a reflection of confusion. And the more confused we are, the more prone to greed, anger, hatred, ill will, selfishness, etc. So what the Buddha is asking us to do, he's not asking us to sit down and argue the cuss around the dinner table until one person comes up with the most convincing argument and go, yes, that's how it must be. He's not asking you to sit down until you've convinced yourself and go, yes, that's how, how it must be. He's asking you to absolutely stop doing that completely and start paying attention to what's actually going on. And through that, gradually coming to see. And he taught us in these three phases, and basically what in Pali is we, he called sila, which we call virtue or conduct, virtuous conduct, is the ground that you build the practice upon. Not only are you building the practice upon virtue, but you actually you're, of course, building your path out of suffering on virtue, because it's not going to stand on anything else. It's only going to stand on virtue. So through restraint in conduct in the early stages, I mean the path out of suffering starts with virtue and it ends with virtue. It ends with the, the, at the causal level, the non-arising of the tendency within us to cause suffering to ourselves or others. And at the early stages, it's, it, it begins with a willingness to restrain ourselves in that conduct which causes suffering to ourselves and others. Now, obviously, there's loads of ethical reasons why we should want to do that. But from the purpose, from which yeah, I'm sure we can all make sense of, we all have some sense of what's morally or ethically appropriate and what's in and not. And we might argue about the fine details of it, but basically what's harmful to self and others and what's not. But the reason we restrain ourselves with regards to actually freeing ourselves from suffering is that until the mind is moderately pacified, it really will not settle and develop any concentration. It will be full of restlessness. Restlessness at one level is my inability to be with how I feel. Now, one of the things that disturbs us is our conduct. I, if I speak harshly, violently, irrationally, erratically, behave like in such a way, if my actions, if what I think, say and do are careless, inconsiderate, erratic, then I am at, at subtle energetic level shaking all the time. And every time I'm undistracted, I feel very uncomfortable. So one of the reasons that we experience such restlessness is because of how we feel if we aren't distracting ourselves. And we don't get concentrated until we can really learn to sit quietly and just be there. So the reason we restrain ourselves in conduct is to stop disturbing ourselves through what we do. So the heart starts to calm down enough to become reflective rather than distorting. And with that as a basis, 
restraint in conduct as a basis, then we can start the purification of mind. So you come here on retreat and you basically take commitment to not speak harshly or lie because you're in silence. You're not taking life or harming another being and you're not supporting yourselves in any way that is a detriment to anyone because you're supported while you're here. So the environment we create here is one that's conducive for the development of concentration and insight. The progress in the daily life, we also need to restrain ourselves to a degree so that the heart and the body are not so disturbed that the mind becomes volatile and uncontrolled. So then we start the process of actually training and refining the vehicle through which we're having this experience. Through right effort, what we call right mindfulness or right attention, paying wise attention, and through the development of concentration. So this right effort also, in the early stages, is an act of restraint and encouragement. What we mean by right effort, there are four aspects to right effort. I'm not going to write them all on the board, slow me up. There is the right effort to restrain in us the tendency of those unwholesome mental states that already have a tendency to arise. I, if we are greedy by nature, we show restraint with regard to greed. If we are anger, angry, if we are, our mind is anger-rooted or aversion-rooted, we show restraint with regards to aversion or anger. To guard against the arising of unwholesome qualities that don't tend to arise but could, i.e. we might be more greed-rooted than aversion-rooted, aversion, no, anger or hatred doesn't tend to arise but it could which means in the situation where it might arise, we restrain ourselves and we work hard to resist the tendency for the non-habitual tendencies to arise when they might. Yeah? So we seek to cut off those unwholesome states that already tend to arise and to not prompt the arising of those unwholesome states that don't tend to arise in us. I, some of us are greed-rooted, some of us are aversion-rooted, some of us are more ignorant-rooted, some of us are non-greed-rooted, non-aversion-rooted. The roots of our mind are different. And then we've got all kinds of conditioning and habitual tendencies. Some of them are not for our welfare. So the first two aspects of right effort are through the restraint of the unwholesome. And the next two are for the encouraging of the wholesome, i.e. to nourish those tendencies, those wholesome qualities in us that already have a tendency to arise. For example, if we are generous by nature, we encourage that generosity. If we are loving by nature, we encourage that capacity to express love. To encourage to arise those wholesome qualities that don't yet or haven't yet come to maturity within us. For example, we might not be generous by nature. But we encourage ourselves towards generosity. We might not be loving by nature. We encourage ourselves towards loving. Yeah? We might not be patient. We encourage ourselves towards patience. We might not be tolerant, etc. 
So we are encouraging the wholesome and discouraging the unwholesome. So that was also in the early stages, while the tendency for these things is still alive in us, is an act of restraint. It's through discipline. So we need to, before we develop the insight that sees where this greed, anger, hatred, ill will is coming from, we cultivate the mind in serenity. So we develop the quality of wise attention, yonosho manasikara, which is seeing things as they are, which means breaking down our tendency to attach ideas to the experiences we're having. To leave the experience in its nakedness. This is what we mean by samasati, right mindfulness. Awareness. Awareness. That's, what, that's basically a mindfulness. It's not what the word says. It's actually mind emptiness, not mindfulness. Very strange word, don't know why we ever came up with it. But it means skillful attention. And that skillful attention is our capacity to not disturb the experience we're having, which is basically equanimity. I leave it alone. So I don't add ideas to it. I don't tell myself stories about it. I don't ask myself what it might be and try to figure it out. In the seeing, there's only the scene, and we leave it at that. And you don't try and unravel it in the mind. There is no resolution in the mind. So the point is to stop short at that place of bare, naked awareness. Stop asking myself about where that cushion might have come from, etc. And just be with the various experiences that you're having and leave them alone to reveal themselves. So this is right attention, right awareness, or right mindfulness. And right concentration, okay, well, in the early, it's obviously concentration is the ability to stay undistracted with the experience I'm having. The compactness of your experience is one of the reasons we're unable to see the cause for its arising. I, we're seeing it in a sort of effectively a one-dimensional level. We're only able to perceive the appearance of things because we aren't able to concentrate deeply enough to see the cause for the appearance of things and the process by which they come into being, which is what we gradually want to show, reveal be revealed to ourselves. So you have to learn to really concentrate undistractedly, not just have a brief glimpse and go, oh, I'm feeling a bit angry, I bet it's because the postman left my mail outside and the dog ate it, or whatever. You know, it's not that, it's about breaking down the experience you're having to see what it's really made of. That's going to take really penetrative concentration. And it's going to take wise attention. So we build what actually the Buddha meant by right concentration is to concentrate so deeply upon what you're doing that the sense of yourself as the doer comes to cessation. Now the mechanism by which that happens I'll explain day after tomorrow. Basically your sense that it's happening to me and your sort of personal take on everything is what smothers the experience and stops you being able to be with it. The way you take it also personally <laughs> is the reason that you can't just allow it to be 
And the fact that you can't allow it to be is the reason you can't see it for what it is. So this, the way that our sense of self fades so we can really leave the experience alone is through concentrating deeply enough, so deeply that we become calm enough, so calm that the experience is not disturbing us at the heart, because it is the disturbance of, at the heart that creates the arising of this sense of me as the experiencer. Okay, I'll explain it in detail in a couple of days. But basically, when we become absorbed, we become that concentrated on what we're doing that we are absorbed in it, the sense of me is gone, and at that moment, my ideas about what's lacking are gone. I mean, most of our sense of suffering is going on in our mind. In fact, 90% of it. Some of it is physical affliction. 90% of our suffering goes on in the mind. 90% of our karma is produced by our mind. Us telling ourselves stories about the experience that we then aren't happy with. We're dreaming it all up. All this misery that we think we're experiencing. There's the nakedness of the experience, which is pleasant or unpleasant. Sometimes you don't get what you want, and sometimes you get what you don't want. Okay, that's the knock that you take if you want to be here. The rest of your suffering is what you create in your mind by adding to the experience unwisely. So it's not until you concentrate deeply enough that the insipid sense of me Stop smothering the experience, and now I can just see it for what it is, or be, be with it for what it is, and start to see it for what it is. So your ideas about what you think are the cause of your suffering are not. They're the suffering. Your ideas about the, what you dreamed up, the suffering that you dreamed up within yourself. Yeah. You get it? Slowly, we get it. Yeah. So once we've learned to concentrate enough, then the mind becomes a mirror. Finally, it stops distorting the experience I'm having. Here is a surface of water that has been disturbed by me disturbing my experience. And that's what the moon looks like when you look at the reflection of it. It doesn't look anything like the moon. And there we are going, I'm trying to figure this out. I wonder what's going on. Yeah, nonsense. You're never going to figure it out while you keep disturbing yourself by adding all your nonsense to the experience. Water only becomes a mirror when it's left undisturbed. Now the moon is reflected perfectly and all we have to do is look at it. Ah, it was the moon. You get it? So all the nonsense that we've dreamed up in our mind is, is because we're looking at a distorted perception of reality because we couldn't leave the experience alone. Yeah? So you not being willing to accept that this is as it is, or this is as it is, or this isn't how I want it, that's what disturbs you, not the experience. Every time you're upset, angry, so whatever, about the experience. Every time you reject your experience or every time you try and grasp it, 
Make it yours at a personal level. You cause a disturbance in the basic ground of your being. You're disturbed by yourself. And now your capacity to reflect back your experience is distorted. And now you're left making, trying to make sense of that. And that's what we stay up at night tying ourselves in knots on, uh, around. So the point is, the suggestion is to stop all of this, trying to figure out what on earth that is. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. If it becomes a little less distorted, you start to get a sense. Okay, it isn't quite what I thought it was. And you leave it completely alone and you see exactly what it is. So this right concentration and this right mindfulness are to leave completely alone, not disturb the experience and pay full attention to it. That's all you have to do. And then this seeing insight. Insight, wisdom, or this word panya, basically means to see into. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's got no intellect involved in it. It doesn't involve your mind. I see what that is. Oh my goodness. It's not what I thought it was. And it is this seeing into that cuts off the views and ideas that we cling to that condition the way that we respond to what it is that we experience that brings the sense that it's lacking and causes the sense of affliction and suffering in us. And then arises in us mental states that are not conducive to our detriment or the detriment of others, but to our welfare. What we call ahimsa, thoughts of harmlessness and unwillingness. now, Now I've seen what this is. Goodness me. An unwillingness to harm oneself or others arises. Because we see it as this profoundly intelligent, sacred thing that we're a part of. And it's not about me, but it's extraordinary. And now this restraint that we had at the beginning, trying not to harm myself and others, now uh, uh, the capacity to harm myself or willingness to harm myself, is cut off at the root. So it's the seeing what this is that frees us from suffering. The root cause of our suffering is ignorance, not greed or hatred, or anger or whatever. It will. It's confusion. I didn't see how it could be like that. I couldn't see what it was. Yeah? So the, the reason I'm explaining this now is to give you the conviction to leave it all alone, for goodness sake, to stop trying to unpick it. You're not going to figure it out in your mind. Nobody has. There's thousands of shelves of books full of people's conclusions about it all. Bottom line is, no matter how much you're convinced by your ideas, you don't know whether they're true. So stop arguing the cuss about them. Let them go, because they're what's between you and the experience that you're actually having. (laughs) So the best thing we can do is to drop it and just leave it alone.
That's the beginning, middle, and the end of this purification of mind. Sama Samadhi, or purification of mind. Yeah? So, your ability to concentrate will be a reflection of your ability to leave things alone, i.e. a reflection of how undisturbed you are by the experience that you're having. So you can concentrate by hanging on to something, hanging on to the breath for dear life while you're shaking and shaking and shaking, but you're going to exhaust yourself and the smoke's going to come out of your ears. Eventually you'll go, pop, and tell me you've had enough. So in equal measure, you must learn to stop disturbing the experience by smothering it with your mind. And then you must sustain your attention until it's clear. And then extraordinary things happen. I mean, there is a reason that people spend large amounts of time sitting on their backside, concentrating on their thumb. How banal. Because when your mind does become clear and concentrated and calm, extraordinary things happen to you. You see what this is, it's always been extraordinary. It's always been extraordinary. The suffering isn't innate within it. The suffering is conditioned by our inability to see it for what it is. So, there you go. Don't disturb yourself through coarse or gross actions in the early stages. Don't disturb yourself by playing with your experience with your mind. Get concentrated and slowly... This we'll look at later. It will reveal itself. Yeah. All right?